the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Uh, My name is Simon Richards. I'm one of the leaders here at, at Belmont. I'm also part of the, of the staff team. I work here uh, three days a week, and the other half of the week, I am a stay-at-home dad. Uh, today, we're going to be continuing our series, uh, Advent teaching series, called uh, Worship in the Waiting. And we're going to be reading from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11. So if you could have that open in front of you, we're going to be reading that in a, in a few moments' time. Now, at home, we've recently been working our way through a colourful, simple and engaging Advent calendar uh, for our boys. Uh, These have gone out through the Young Families team to all of the Young Families connected with Belmont, either on Sunday or uh, through the week. It's wonderfully done and it covers all of the key events, as it should, of, of Christmas Uh, The story of the coming of Christ as told in Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, those early chapters. Yet here's the challenge for me as I've been reading through this this Advent calendar with the boys. As a grown-up, and we're the grown-ups here together this morning. The challenge for me is to make sure that I get beyond the the familiarity and the the seemingly fairytale-like nature of the Christmas story. I don't know about you, but I find that uh, when I look at uh, some of the retellings of of Christmas, it's easy in the midst of the airbrushed posters, uh, colourful drawings, uh, fun cartoons, stickers, displays and so on, even the Christmas lights. You can subtly and quietly forget this, that we're dealing with uh, real, uh, grown-up, gritty history. That's what we are dealing with when we take a look at the Christmas story. So I wanted us to begin with a non-Christian source. We're not going to read the Bible straight away. I want us to begin with someone who didn't have skin in the game for this whole Christianity thing. I want us to begin with this guy. GQ's Beard of the Year, AD 90, Josephus, uh, Flavius Josephus. He wrote in the late first century AD... And he wrote a historical work that's called Antiquities. And he writes of John, who we're going to meet in a few moments' time in Matthew's Gospel, also known as John the Baptist. You might have heard of him. So our friend Flavius, with his wonderful beard, he records the following. He records in his work Antiquities, many people came in crowds to him, that's John, for they were greatly moved by his words. He was a preacher. He also notes that John, John the Baptist, was a political threat. Herod feared the great influence John had over the crowds and was concerned that he might raise a rebellion for the crowd seemed ready to do anything that he should should advise. And he goes on to write that John, and we'll see this confirmed in our gospel reading in a few moments' time, was sent as a prisoner out of Herod's suspicious temper to a place called Machaerus, That's the name of the prison. And there he was put to death. John the Baptist's death, actually, is one of the most grisly and nasty and gritty things in the New Testament. 
Uh, he is at the whim of a princess beheaded and his head is brought into that same party on a platter. It's grim, gritty history that we're reading. So just a reminder then at the outset, as we open our Bibles, which is about real stuff, real people, as we read Matthew uh, chapter 11 and verses 1 to 11. So would you be able to open that up in front of you, whether you are are reading um, paper copy or, or digital? I've used that time just to lose my place. One moment. Perhaps that will help you find it too. So Matthew chapter 11 and from verse, verse 1 to 11. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd now about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it's written, I'll send my messenger ahead of you who'll prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women... There has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. That's where we're going to end our reading of Matthew's gospel. And we're going to take a look first at some of the uh, real doubts that we see in the passage in front of us. I mentioned that we're dealing with real gritty history. We're also dealing with real people. We're dealing with all of the authenticities of people's doubts, questions and uncertainties regarding Jesus. I take it that's what we have here when John asks Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? I take that to be sincere doubt and from someone who's the closest to Jesus. So as an aside... If you're setting out to fake some of this, if you're out to fabricate a gospel, you certainly don't include moments like this one in what you're writing. You don't include these moments of real doubt and uncertainty from those closest to Jesus. Yet that's exactly what we have here. We're dealing with real stuff, real people, real doubt. And so this friction and this misunderstanding with John, who's a big deal, and Jesus has the ring of real authenticity to it. We're reading about real stuff, real people. So here you've got John, whom Jesus himself will describe as the greatest born of women, verse 11, and as more than a prophet, verse 9. And here he is expressing his real doubt and uncertainty to Jesus. 
You can see it there just in that question. Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? We're going to work through that question and we're going to look at Jesus's reply. But just so you know, should we just say this, that at the very least, you should know you can bring your real doubts and uncertainties to Jesus. He welcomes skeptics. He can handle it. He is completely unfazed. Tim Keller is someone who has been welcoming and addressing skeptics for some time in Manhattan, New York. He has this to say, particularly about the doubts of believers. Take a look at this and see what you think. A faith without doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenceless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart sceptic. I picked that one out because our knowledge of antibodies has gone through the roof as of late, hasn't it? Now, if you wanted somewhere to take your own uh, doubts, questions, or the doubts or questions of a friend, you could head to our Alpha That's beginning, actually, in February 2022, the 1st of February, if you want to note it in your diary. That's where we go through some of the nuts and bolts of the the Christian faith, and all are welcome. You might want to just lodge that in your mind. Is that something for you, or is that something for a friend of yours? You can bring your uncertainties and your doubts here. Well, what do you think? Who could you, perhaps, invite along to that? Let's come back to, to John then. His entire life's work has been to, be, to prepare the way for the coming one. He'd say things like this, and here I'm quoting from elsewhere in Matthew's Gospel, his account of the life of Jesus. He says things like this, After me comes one who's more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11. Yet as we meet John here, things aren't going well for him, are they? He is in prison. His preaching and his teaching days are over. He's held captive by Herod. And John spoke truth to power. That's why he ended up in prison. He declared publicly to the ruler of the day that his adultery was ungodly and unlawful. His adultery was with his sister-in-law, Herodias. And because of the threat that John represented to Herod, he's found himself a prisoner. It's a classic tale, isn't it? An all too modern one of the misuse and abuse of power and position and privilege. And so John, who was once so confident, so eloquent, who drew the crowds, who emptied the cities, now finds he's beginning to develop some doubts and some uncertainties about the identity of the Messiah. And now we want to investigate where these doubts have come from. To me, they seem to have arisen from two places, if you take a look. That could be the dark first, the darkness of his own personal experience. That could be a place in which doubt could come from. He finds himself in prison. Secondly, it could be this disconnect between his own expectations of what the Messiah would be like and what the Messiah would do and what Jesus is actually like and what he is actually doing. And I think it's more likely the second of those than the first. So let's follow up with that disconnect between 
what John is expecting the Messiah would be like and do and what Jesus is actually like and what he's actually doing. Jesus' ministry was clearly challenging John's expectations. Jesus challenges all of our expectations, believer, unbeliever alike. We all find at times that he's not quite what we expect. And we'll see a little later, that is for our great blessing. John perhaps was expecting that the promises of the Old Testament would be fulfilled in a one and done kind of way. He thought perhaps that this was going to be a once for all dramatic appearing of the Messiah. In one decisive moment, Jesus is going to put everything right. His kingdom would come. He'd judge wrongdoing and put everything right. John had been saying things like this. Matthew's gospel, chapter 3 and verse 10. He'd say stuff like, the axe is already at the root of the tree. Every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Or he'd say things like this. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 12. Describing the Messiah, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He'll clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Yet for all of the marvellous deeds that Jesus was doing, and we see them listed in verses 4 and 5, he certainly doesn't seem to be wrapping up history. Where was the kingdom? Where was the judgment of wrongdoing? Why was John still in prison at the mercy of a powerful and whimsical king? Why hadn't Jesus put everything right now? If anything, it looked like Jesus was starting something entirely new, characterised less by judgment and more by grace. It presents John with a puzzle, and it's one that we'll need to work through too. But for now, let's look at Jesus' reply to that question. What's Jesus going to say when John asks, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Well, Jesus is going to present John with real evidence, real stuff to look at. So let's take a look now at how Jesus reacts to to John's real doubt. You'll be thoroughly disappointed, I expect, to note that Jesus doesn't give a simple answer. Wouldn't it be lovely... um, Are you the one who is to come? Yes. Should we expect another? No. Uh, But it's not like that, is it? Uh, Jesus rarely gives a simple answer, and he actually does that too for our blessing. He wants the yes to come from you. At a glance, Jesus' response is to point John to the evidence. It's to ask him to look at the ancient scriptures and to compare them with all that Jesus is saying and all that he's doing. It's as if Jesus is saying, look at the scriptures, then look at my words and my deeds. The argument, and it is an argument that has a proof, amounts to this. If God has made a promise in history to visit his world and do these things, and then someone arrives and does all of these things, then you've got your answer. Do you need anything more than this? Jesus, in 40 words that we have on screen now, none of which are his own, they all belong to the prophet Isaiah, writing 700 years before, answers John's real doubts and uncertainty regarding Jesus' own identity 
as the Messiah. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor, and blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. In verses 4 and 5, Jesus is using the ancient scriptures. Megan read those for us earlier from Isaiah 35. He's also using Isaiah 61, and he's putting them together to provide proof that his own words and deeds align with the prophesied coming one, the Messiah, who was foretold centuries ago. He bolts these two bits of Isaiah together to provide a summary and an overview, a proof of the ministry of Jesus and that Jesus is the Messiah. And this simple summary, that wonderful list of all that Jesus has been doing, those That's just a retelling of Matthew chapters 8 and 9. With a word, he cleanses lepers. He makes the lame to walk. He heals the sick. Not to mention, this one didn't make the cut clearly. Calming a storm, casting out demons, and telling a paralyzed man to get up, take your mat, and go home. Later on in Matthew 9, he'll take a little girl by the hand and raise her from the dead. Enable the blind to see and the mute to speak. Are you looking for more than this? Matthew simply summarizes all this saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Matthew chapter nine and verse 33. And Jesus has a wonderful enigmatic saying at the midway through the chapter that we're looking at today. He says this, wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Matthew chapter 11, verse 19. Look at what Jesus has done. But what he is doing here is far more profound than we can really have time to grasp. Not only is he being very deliberate at what he includes in his reply to John as his proof that Jesus is the Messiah, he's also being careful about what's not included removing all of those references that Megan did read for us at the beginning of vengeance and divine retribution. Or from Isaiah 61, the day of vengeance of our God. They are in there, in the ancient scriptures, in the prophecies. It's not simply that Jesus is ignoring judgment, far from it. But it's clear from his teaching that that is for a later day one that we look toward. I'm thankful to John Dennis of Holy Trinity Hyde Park, Chicago for giving some insight into how deliberately Jesus is using his language here, especially with regard to sight and to hearing. Verse four, go and tell John what you hear and see. And he then provides a list of miracles that include the blind now seeing and the deaf now hearing. And we find these themes and specific promises throughout the entire book of Isaiah. How's this for one? Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 18. Sorry, I don't have that one on the screen for you. In that day, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll and out of gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. So let's catch up here. So here's what Jesus is offering to your personal, real doubts and uncertainties, regardless of where they've come from. 
They might have come from personal dark experience. They might have come from this disconnect between what you're expecting and what Jesus is really like. He effectively says, look at my deeds. Wisdom is proved right by her deeds. John is discovering that Jesus doesn't fit his expectations. Maybe you've discovered that one already for yourself. If we're being honest, we find in all of our following of Jesus, there are times in which he quite literally isn't what we expected. But that doesn't mean he isn't the Messiah. Our own expectations and personal experience won't negate his arrival or his truthfulness. That's ground truth, reality, real stuff that has happened. John's having to learn that Jesus won't fit the box he wants to put him in. Do we need to learn that one too? No doubt we all too have to learn that Jesus won't fit the narrow small box of our own expectations of him that we want to put him in. But that doesn't negate his arrival and his truthfulness. Believer and unbeliever alike this morning, we hold assumptions about God, about what he should do, about what he should be like. Jesus won't fit the box you want to put him in. And the greatest of all the prophets needed that truth. And chances are we do too. And for those who know that truth, who believe it, this is what Jesus has to say about you. Whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. That's John. Perhaps that's why then Jesus appends this new saying right at the very end in verse 6. Did you spot it? Here's where the real blessing is. It's been referred to as a new beatitude. You'll recall Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount continuing these stunning sayings. Do you remember those? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, they'll be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And here we have a new beatitude for you this morning. Blessed is anyone, Jesus says, who does not stumble on account of me. Or in other translations, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. The Greek word there is scandalizo, from which you can hear the English scandal, scandalize. There are things in all that Jesus says and does that will go against your expectations and mine, your preferences and mine, your desires and mine. We're blessed if we accept Jesus on his own terms. You'll be familiar then, as we come to a close, with, with a verse that we've held on to throughout this year. It's from 2 Peter from 1 Peter 2 and chapter 9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That is an abundant description of being in the kingdom. That is an abundant description of what it means to be blessed. But just prior to our verse for the year, Jesus is spoken of as the stone in Zion 
a chosen and precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And now to you who believe, if you believe today, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become a cornerstone, a stone that causes people to stumble or to take offence, and a rock that makes them fall. So where are you in all this? Real doubt? Do you need to bring your honest questions to God? Real evidence? Do you need to spend time looking at all that Jesus has said and done? Or real blessing? Is it as simple as accepting Jesus anew, afresh, not on your terms, but on his? Let's take a moment now just to consider what the Lord would have us do in response to his word today. Amen.